Good morning, saints of HBC. You can turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Joy to worship together today and uh, celebrate the kindness of God in, in so many ways, through song, through prayer, through baptism. All praise be to Him. All praise be to Him also for uh, the barbecue last week. I know that's uh, sometimes, we, it's an underrated thing, a church barbecue, but uh, those generous, generous, I speak for a living, generous pork portions led to the generosity of the people, uh, raising about $6,500 for camp scholarships. So we're thankful for that, thankful for the good work that uh, Dan and Justin continue to do uh, for our young people, and um, we are just excited for what's ahead this summer. Uh, Last week I said we're going to do a mini-series this month called Grace and Peace, studying Romans chapter 5, and the reason for that was having just spent the last year and a half in Mark, in thinking through it and praying through it, uh, you kind of come to the end of it and say, that is the series in studying the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, and say, okay, so what now? What, what difference did it make? And we, we came to Romans 5 and said, this is the difference it makes. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have these blessings of our salvation, peace with God. Standing in faith, in grace, before him, and, and a future hope. Those were the blessings that we have. And those are particular to the believer. Uh, as we were kind of looking at it first to uh, Romans 5 last week, we said there is a slight difference between the audience written to in uh, Romans 1 to 4. You could say that's a um, one-size-fits-all letter, as in the recipient could be anybody that falls under the category of sinner. All in sin, all apart from the glory of God, all need a Savior. And yet, like we put addresses on cards, especially uh, brothers in here, uh, that you know, you sent a card to mom for Mother's Day. By the way, happy Mother's Day to all the moms and grandmoms here, all God's precious daughters, whether single, married, kids or no kids. If you've made an investment of your life in Christ into another person's life, That's the greatest thing you can do. Uh, That's why Paul commends Lois and Eunice at the beginning of 2 Timothy 1. Because a sincere, a genuine, a tested faith passed on from one person to the next. That's what this is about. And so thank you for all of those who passed their faith on to another. We praise God for all y'all. This week, as I was sending a card to my mom, I had that moment of after dropping it in the... uh, What's that? I forget these simple words. The, the, not the mailbox. I was at the post office, whatever the place is you put your mail. And then I walked out the doors, and there was that kind of OCD second guessing. Did I remember to put the right address on there? You know, because in the day and age we're in with cell phones, we don't remember anything anymore. We don't remember our own phone numbers, let alone others' addresses. And so I kind of had this pause, and I had to remember myself writing down the right address because I wanted to go to the right recipient. I mean, it's not like I put 500 bucks in there, but, you know, if it went to the wrong house, that would be odd for that person to open it up, maybe, unless there was a Panera gift card in there, and Bob says, I'm going to keep that and pass it on to Maryland, you know, but, but we put a recipient on it because they are the one particular to the message, and that's the change from Romans 1 through 4 to Romans 5. It's not addressed to general humanity who are in sin and in need of a Savior, You look at what Paul wrote in Romans 4.25, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification, Romans 5.1, therefore, and then all this we language, since we have been justified by faith. So now that recipient of the letter is particular to those who have trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation. And what are the blessings that come with that salvation? Peace with God, verse 1. Standing in faith. These these are past, present, and future blessings. Past, my past, whatever might be in my past that I would think puts me an enemy with God, at enmity with God, opposed to God, which is what all sinners are. Whatever could be in my past has now been, having been justified by faith, forgiven, and I have peace with God. And it gets even better because presently, Paul could say, you Christians not only have that past removed, the guilt and shame gone, you stand in a relationship with God of peace, but you stand in grace presently. 
Meaning you don't have to worry about going back to working your way to God and pleasing him. You stand in a sphere, in a new world of grace. And then you even have a future hope there in verse 2. A hope that is for the glory of God now and forever. So Paul has you covered past, present, and future. And the reason he wants to do that is because we can um, take for granted valuable things. We could hear the gospel. We could hear salvation and be like, yeah, and forget the value of what we have. It makes me think of growing up. Uh, I would go over to my grandparents' house and my pap. He had um, one of those uh, Lionel train sets that he had from the 50s that my dad played with. And they're valuable today. And we would go down and watch him set this up at Christmas. And he, he looked like a true conductor. I mean, especially for a little train set. He was a wee little man, my pap was. And he would have all these trains set up and we'd watch them go. And they were entertaining in the moment, but years go on and you forget the value. He dies in the late 90s. And my grandmother, they have no value to her. I mean, she, that was just like, oh, you're down in the basement again with those trains. First thing she does, takes all those trains, puts an ad in the penny saver. The, the, the local uh, weekly where you could sell things for far below their value. And those Lionel train sets that would be worth hundreds, some thousands today, were sold for pennies in the penny saver. My dad didn't know. My grand just wanted to get rid of them. Didn't know the value she had to make things even worse. My dad finds out later, this guy had called my grandma back after he was a Lionel train hawk, waiting for people to get rid of things worth a lot that they don't know about. He calls her later and says, hey, uh, I'm going to come back with some money for you. I was going through your trains and uh, someone stuffed a bunch of money in the train cars. So, you know, my pap grew up through the Great Depression, didn't maybe trust putting it in a bank. We don't know to this day how much money he was stuffing in all those train cars. But the guy returned Maybe all of it, maybe some of it. And it reminds me of knowing the value of what you have, which is what Paul's trying to do for believers in Romans 5, all the way through Romans 11. You have this great salvation. You've been justified by faith. What more could you want? In verse 2 last week ended with, what more could you rejoice in? Well, he has something more to rejoice in that we're going to see this morning. So follow along with me. I'll read. Verses 1 and 2 again, and then we'll go through uh, verse 5. Wonderful truths to encourage our hearts this morning. Romans 5, 1 to 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. And may he bless this word this morning to our hearts. Paul summarizes our salvation, having been justified by faith, meaning in Christ, God sees us just as if. How are you going to remember justification? It sounds like just as I, just as if I have never sinned, justified. Just as if I had Christ's righteousness, justified. And we believe that by faith. We have no reason, as you heard in testimonies this morning, to believe in a righteousness of our own. We can lie to ourselves. We can clean up the outside. All four baptism testimonies, first service and then two in this one. This, the common thread, just attempting in some way to look like we have it together on the outside. But we only receive that righteousness, that perfect righteousness that God requires of us through the righteousness of his son because he actually lived a perfect life, which we saw in the gospel of Mark. Week in and week out perfectly obedient to his Father's will, which is not what we are by default. 
So this is the greatness of our salvation, past, present, and future. Peace with God, past. Stand in God's grace, present. Hope in God's glory, future. What more needs to be said? Something occurs to the Apostle Paul to add in verse 3. And it's not what we would expect coming on the heels of. So rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You've got it all. Except there is not only that verse 3. There's another thing he wants to add. What more could it be beside these blessings of our salvation? But we rejoice. Oh, there's something more to rejoice in. This is going to be good. Our suffering. That's not so good. Nobody walks around. Common to man thinking. I'm going to ask what that is. Just kidding. That's, That's just a distraction. It's the baptism. It happens every time. But I always for a moment get thrown off. Like there's a snake behind me or a copperhead especially, the dangerous ones. It'll go away. But nobody walks around rejoicing in their sufferings. It's just not what we do. And yet here we are, standing in grace, rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God, knowing we have peace with Him. And Paul has to bring up suffering. And he says, not just that we have to accept suffering exists, he says we're to rejoice in our sufferings. In fact, it's not even a command. Look what it says in your Bible. We rejoice in it. It's it's a reality. What gives? How could we possibly rejoice in suffering? Well, the key is what he says next there. Knowing. That's a key word that you need to know in verse 3 here this week. If you're going to catch a word and hold on to it, you got to know that if he's going to say we rejoice, we Christians who rejoice in the gospel and what we have in salvation, we're going to rejoice in our sufferings. But it's preceded, it's dependent on the word knowing. So that we just don't go around haphazardly telling people who are going through suffering, hey, come on, put a smile on your face. Why aren't you rejoicing? Well, it's predicated on knowing something about suffering. Knowing about suffering precedes the command to rejoice in it. And that word rejoice, it's a a full word, meaning it could be to glory in something, to boast in something. And I think what jars us is that it stands right in the aftermath of being told to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And now we're to rejoice in suffering. Why would Paul's mind even go here? Uh, Think about the connection between the two. I mean... If you're a true Christian, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ and you've been told, imagine hearing this letter read for the first time. And you've been told you have peace with God. Everything's squared up. No sins left for for you to worry about that could take that away. You stand in his grace presently and you have the hope of his glory in the future. What could threaten that? Well, maybe that's where Paul goes with this. I mean, you have all these blessings of salvation, but what could threaten that is if that salvation is not secure. Remember, these, these people aren't where we are today with the, with the thousands and thousands of volumes talking about what justification by faith is and that once saved, always saved. They don't know any of that. So here, they're, they're, their minds could go to this. Well, could I lose what I have? Is my salvation secure? I mean, I have all these blessings but what, what could be the one thing that would make me doubt whether my salvation really is secure? What would threaten that? Well, suffering would do that. And how could suffering threaten the security of my salvation? Well, remember what we talked about last week. The person that's trying to come to God on a works-based system, which is what he built the argument in Romans on. I've got to work my way to God. There's no way it's by faith. And then he blows that up in chapter 4 and says, it's always been by faith. That's how you stand righteous before God. It's by faith in Jesus Christ and what he did. But if you have deep in the recesses of your thinking that i got to work my way to God, and I'm never quite sure of whether he's pleased with me or not, in this gospel that Paul preaches, spends chapter 2 and 3 telling me how rotten of a sinner I am and I'm an enemy of God. So if things start going bad in my life, Could it be that I might start to think God is not at peace with me anymore? I don't stand in his grace. 
And if I'm not at peace with God and I don't stand in his grace, there goes my future hope. What makes one doubt those truths? Suffering. That everything isn't just going to go copacetic at this point. It's not all good. My life could actually get worse coming to Christ. Ask Paul the sufferer. And we'll get to that later. But when you're trying to say, how does he make this connection? I think he makes the connection that Paul tells us to rejoice in our suffering right on the heels of the blessings of our salvation, perhaps because the security of a true Christian could be threatened by wondering if you can lose your salvation. You could lose God's grace and God's peace. And what might make you think that could happen is when bad things happen. I've fallen out of favor with God, isn't Grace, another word for what? Unmerited favor. So when, when somebody, you know this on a relational level, somebody's your friend close to you, and suddenly it feels cool. You would say, maybe I've fallen out of grace. They, they've, they've changed towards me. The circumstances, they're not treating me the same. Well, would we not? In a relationship with God, when you're thinking that way, in, in your lowest moments of suffering, say maybe... I don't have his favor anymore. And if I don't have his favor, then maybe he's my enemy again. And I'm still sinning. And maybe I'm back to where I started. Maybe I could lose what I have. So really this section that we're about to jump into from three to five over the next few weeks. The section is really about, and actually all of chapter five gets at this one thing. It's your security and your salvation. If you've been united to Christ... There is no greater power that can take you away from him. But the first attack on that that would be common to man to think about might be our suffering. So as I thought about that this week, and I had already sent in the title for my sermon prematurely, and I wrote, The Blessings of Suffering, you can take your notes today, and I don't even know if it's up behind me, and change the title today's sermon, and it's going to be the title for the next few weeks, The Blessings of Our Security. We've looked at the blessings of salvation. Now we're going to look at the blessings of security and see how God, in his sovereign design of our lives after salvation, can even use suffering to believe that our salvation is not less secure, but more secure. So much so then that we can make the jump between verse 2 and 3 and really believe it. That we can rejoice in our salvation, the hope of the glory of God in verse 2. And we can turn right around and say, and I can rejoice in my sufferings because there's a connection between the two. This great salvation that I can rejoice in, I can even rejoice when I suffer. And this is getting to the end of it, which we will be in a few weeks But I can rejoice in suffering because at the end of the suffering, at the end of the line, when all is said and done, I've seen through that that God still loves me. I'm still at peace with him. I still stand in his grace. And I still have that same future hope. I think the hard thing to to grasp is even when you look at that word rejoice and say, is rejoicing in my salvation, the hope of the glory of God, verse 2, and rejoicing in my sufferings, verse 3, the same kind of rejoicing? you got to think about that for a minute, don't you? It, it, they just seem at odds. I could be praising God for this great salvation, exalting, glorying, boasting in my salvation, and then I turn around and I boast in my sufferings. One is so good. One is so glorious. One is what we love to sing about in here. That's rejoicing in our salvation. Where's all the songs about rejoicing in our suffering? They don't sell. It's not common to us, to, to our natural inclination to believe that's something we should rejoice in. So I was, I was putting my own heart and mind to the test this week and thinking about the difference between the two. And it was helped by an incident that happened in a time of prayer with, with some of the staff at the church. And we were praying this week, and one of the uh, brothers prayed for marriages hanging on by a thread. And that gripped me. I was, just, I was thinking about this, and I hear this phrase, and we pray for those people whose marriage is hanging on by a thread, and that's when it hit me. 
See, our, the blessings of your salvation, the, the peace you have, the grace you have, the hope you have, these are wonderful things that we just see it for what it is and we rejoice in it. We see salvation for what it is and it's a true, I can glory in that, I can exalt in that. And then I'm thinking about rejoicing in suffering and going, I'm not rejoicing in it in the same way. I'm not, because to rejoice in our salvation is to rejoice in it for what it is. It's grace. It's peace. It's hope. But suffering aren't those things. So what do, I, what do we rejoice in? We rejoice in what the thread is doing. Not what the thread is. The thread that a, a person's faith is hanging on when you're going through suffering. That's, we're rejoicing that that thread is there and that it's holding. It's not what it is. We're not rejoicing in suffering for what it is. We're rejoicing for what it does. And that's what the argument of Paul is here from three to five. He's saying we're rejoicing in suffering. Why? Because then he has to add all the things that suffering does. Do you see that now? What's that like? It's like the Golden Gate Bridge. I'm glad you made that face because it means I really got to sell it now. The difference between the two Rejoicing in our salvation and rejoicing in the security we have in light of our suffering. What one thing is versus what one thing does. And I was thinking about the thread image, and you got to have a really strong thread when you're holding on to your faith. It, what that thread is made of is everything. So say Shan and I go to San Francisco, and we're coming to the Golden Gate Bridge, and we get out, and knowing the difference between her and I, I think she might immediately first catches her eye, just exalts or praises or boasts in how pretty the bridge is. It's beautiful, that bridge. By the way, in doing my research about this bridge, the initial conception for its color scheme was supposed to be black and gold because of the, uh, color, because of the fog for ships to see it stand out. I know I'm always giving a little nod to that. It would have been the ugliest bridge in history if they would have painted it striped black and yellow, black and gold. But they painted it that, that crimson orange or whatever it is. And people, I mean, it's 1.7 miles across. They exalt in the glory of that bridge, its beauty. And it's, but see, I would be, there's this part on the side that they take a cross section of the cable and show you what's in it. And I'd be driving over that bridge exalting in what the bridge does. The bridge holds up. 887,000 tons of weight. All on little pencil with steel threads. 80,000 miles of them. 80,000 miles of steel thread, the width of a pencil that can go around the earth three times. It was a marvel of architecture and construction. All for the purpose, not for people to stand there and say, what a beautiful bridge. It was built for the purpose to get people from one side to the other. There's what the bridge is, and there's what the bridge does. And what the bridge does is what Paul's going to talk about in 3 to 5. The security of your salvation includes a few different strands of steel. And they're intertwined together. Just like what's holding 36 inch diameter of thousands and thousands of these things run back and forth that hold up all that weight and all those cars. So when I think about people whose faith is hanging on by a thread, we're not sitting there praising the beauty and glory of something hanging on by a thread. We're giving praise and rejoicing in the suffering because it's still holding. It's still doing its job. And that's how you get to exalting, as Paul would say here, in sufferings. He wants you to take the whole package of three to five and say, that's what I can rejoice in. It's not what suffering is in and of itself. Because none of us live that way. None of us walk around seeing suffering and going, isn't that great, that suffering? No, we wait till some time goes on. And you heard them in baptism today. They look back and they say, but then I see what God was doing. I see what God did. And I could give thanks to God for it. 
the thread. It held. Even that one thread that we don't like called suffering. But we see how it's wound up with endurance and character and hope. And then doesn't put us to shame in the end because we stand there saying, yes, my salvation is secure. I know God loves me. So let's test the strength of the thread. This week we're going to look at just at the presence of suffering. Next week we'll see the process of endurance, the product of character, and we'll end on the promise of hope. These four strands that are going to be bound together, wound up so they can hold your faith through the storm. Let's start with the presence of suffering, verse 3 this week. And there's five aspects of suffering I just want us to think about coming out of just the idea of knowing What do we need to know about suffering? Well, you better be able to take your Bible in the worst of what it says about suffering. And remember what I said last week? Flip the pyramid over and put the point on that word and say that. If I'm going to rejoice in suffering, it better be able to hold the entirety of the scope of Scripture. Or else it's going to give me a way to wiggle out. It'll give me something, some excuse to make. Yeah, all suffering except for what? Paul's not giving you an except for. He's saying we could rejoice in suffering. It's, it's a basic word. It's, a, it's an all-encompassing word. Afflictions, persecutions, oppressions. It's translated a bunch of different ways throughout your New Testament. And what it meant literally was something that was crushing down. It was, it was a literal image of grapes being pressed to get out the wine. It was an image of, of wheat being cr- rubbed together so that the chaff and the grain is separated. And that is what suffering feels like. Is it not? The press, the rub, the pressure, the everything's caving in on me. That's what it feels like. And Paul could say we're going to rejoice in it because of something it's going to produce. But let's first see what it is so that we can't anyway feel like we're talking out of both sides of our mouths if we are going to say yes Paul I'm with you I can rejoice in my sufferings we better know something about it so five things today about suffering then we'll look at endurance next week character and hope the weeks after that and that'll be our conclusion looking at Romans 5 1 to 5 first first point about suffering that we need to consider and and these five points are going to go in ascending order from I can accept that. I don't like that. Kind of like going to the gym, putting the bar on first, and then working your way up with more weight. So we're going to start with the one that I think everybody can accept. Anybody that just looks out and sees a world is just lifting the bar. Suffering is part of a life in a fallen world. I don't think there's many people that would argue the point there that there isn't suffering in the world. And it just seems to be part of life. John 16, famous last words of Jesus in the upper room. He had his disciples there. He, he, what's the last message he wants to give them in light of all he taught them in John 13, 14, 15, and now in 16? This is what he says to them. I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. That word tribulation is the same exact word as suffering to rejoice in in Romans 5, 3. In the world, you're going to have suffering. In the world, you're going to have tribulation. In your world, you're going to have oppression. But take heart. I've overcome the world. There's a double promise there. The first promise, eh, not so good. You're going to have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. I mean, this is the first, this is the first even uh, hint of the separating from the wheat and the chaff of, of true Christians from the fake ones in the world. Because if your life was promised to just get a lot easier when you became a Christian, everyone would do it. I mean, really, think about that. If we all can agree on the fact that there's suffering in the world and it's indiscriminate, no partiality to it, rain falls on the just and the unjust, the Bible says. Bad days for Christians, Buddhists, rebellious kids. For Muslims, atheists. It's indiscriminate, the suffering in the world. But if, if, if our faith was built on this idea, but check this out. When you become a Christian, you don't suffer anymore. Everybody come down front. Give your life to Christ today. And what if it actually was that way? 
Would people be coming because of Christ or because of the benefit? And there's a difference between the two. Christ would mean nothing. It would just be, so I just have to say I'm with him to get that. That is how it would work. Look at the most populated churches. What message did they sell? Did they sell the message that it's a narrow way and there's some things to give up and you have to take up your cross and follow him? Or is it come to Jesus and he'll solve all your problems? Oh, that, what's going to solve my problems? I don't care what it is. Just give me it. It's motive. If truly people could, like if there was a great divide, you know, between Christians and non-Christians in the world and you'd ride past my house, as I mentioned last week, and then the grass is growing green, no weeds in sight. In fact, it's weird. Ashraf doesn't even have to mow his lawn. God does it for him. And then my neighbor who buys all the equipment has the, man, crab grass everywhere. People would come for the wrong reason. But suffering is part of a life in a fallen world, and there's no promise that we're delivered from the tribulation. In fact, Jesus promises the opposite. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Job 5, 7, man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Just a simple image. As you see that fire and those sparks go up into the black sky, you're born into this world, trouble comes. And you even see it back in Romans 5 in our text. The explanation for the suffering in the world is built on the sin that came into the world when Adam sinned. Look at Romans 5, 12. How did we get into this mess? Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death, all categories of it, everything goes from order to disorder, destruction, falls apart, doesn't naturally get put back together, death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. There's the explanation for it. Sin came in the world through Adam, suffering came into the world through sin, we live on a broken planet. One writer I was recently reading this wrote, because of Adam's sin against God in the garden, all people now live in a world of profound pain. Bad days, hard marriages, rebellious kids, crash in the stock market, part of life in a fallen world. That's just the bar. Now let's start adding some weight. Number two, suffering is part of life from others' sinfulness against you. First John now, this is really built on uh, in the upper room when Jesus said in John 15, the world hated me, it's going to hate you. First uh, John 3.13 expands it. But I chose this text because of the context around it. That I wanted to find an example. Could there be a possibility that someone could sin against you and there, you had no part in invoking the action towards you? Could you really say you were truly innocent? So 1 John 3.13, John writes, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. But right before that, he gave an example of someone being hated for no reason other than they were really righteous. It was Cain and Abel. I mean, if you thought it was bad that in the garden, Adam and Eve, what I just highlighted, brought sin in the world for all people, you know what? They had to face down their own fallenness when they saw their firstborn. When they saw an act of murder in the next generation, their own kids. We should not be like Cain, verse 12 says, who was one of the evil one and murdered his brother. And here's the explanation. There is none really. Why did he murder him? Did, did Abel do something wrong? No. Because Abel's deeds, or Cain's own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Suffering is part of life from other sinfulness even when you have done the righteous thing. So he goes back to the garden again, or kicked out of the garden, and there's Cain and Abel, and Abel has not done anything wrong, no reason for any act of aggression from his brother Cain, other than he was righteous and his brother was evil. So don't be surprised when the world hates you and you receive something like that, when you receive some persecution. For Paul to even write that we should rejoice in suffering, some of us, you know, it's, it's kind of in us that when somebody might kind of lean into us a little bit if they think we're kind of down in the dumps about something and say kind of like cheer up and we kind of come back with that like, well, you don't know me. You haven't been through what I've been through. You don't know how hard I've had it. So we might have that attitude towards Paul because 
Paul doesn't know you. He doesn't know what you've been through. What right does he have to tell you to rejoice in your sufferings? He better have some credibility. But see, Paul was never into boasting and glorying in his own credibility to tell us things. So I'm going to do it on his behalf. Does Paul have credibility to tell us to rejoice in our sufferings? 2 Corinthians 11. Listen to the list of things he suffered from others, though he did nothing against them. Countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times shipwrecked. A night and a day, adrift at the sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers. Look, even the rivers were against this guy. Danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wild, can't go anywhere. Danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in cold and exposure and apart from other things. There is the daily pressure of me, of my anxiety for the church. If I'm going to boast, I'll boast to the things that show my weakness. There's his resume. Life in a fallen world, others sinning against him. And Paul wasn't going around looking for it, but he also didn't avoid it. He saw it was a way for God to show him his weakness. And as we talked about in the Gospel of Mark, God shows us our weakness to show us our brokenness to make us actually useful. Jesus never avoided the hardship of his own life. He didn't go looking for it as well. We saw in the gospel of Mark how many times Jesus, using perfect prudence, wisdom from above, knew when to go into something and when to retreat. So we're not saying you have to have uh, this, this mentality of a stoic. You know the stoics? I mean, you get the expression from it. guy had a real stoic expression on his face, but it was actually a teaching that, that had this idea of, um, you know, you just got to embrace life and the hardship. It just just... Grin and bear it. Their, their motto would be, I eat suffering for breakfast. I mean, that's not what Paul is advocating for here. That would be so indifferent and insensitive. On the other hand, we also don't go around trying to dodge any, 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 any possible way that suffering may hit us, like the Epicureans. They were the opposite of the Stoics. They were the hedonists. They were just, I want to live for pleasure. And I'm going to try to avoid and dodge and duck any type of hardship, suffering possible. I just want to live for the moment. They would be of the motto, don't worry, be happy. Deny anything bad's happening. And listen, life isn't like that. You live the one way like a stoic, nobody's going to want to ultimately be around you. You've got to show a little bit of feeling once in a while. And just be able to call suffering for what it is. It stinks and it hurts. But you're also not over here just kind of living, uh, just, I'm not going to look at it. I'm not going to talk about it. If I pretend it's not there, it'll go away. And Paul's not saying that's how we live our lives. And he's saying suffering is in the world. He's been under it. We can rejoice in it even when it comes from others, sinfulness against us. Of the 45 times this word for suffering is used in the New Testament, Paul used it half of them, 24 out of the 45. It was part of his makeup. So there goes a little bit more weight on the bar. How about this next one? And this is where it really gets heavy. Suffering, number three, is part of life from my own sinfulness. Suffering is a part of life due to my own sinfulness. Galatians 6, 7 and 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. We may not like to admit this. That there are earthly consequences for our sin. We sleep in the bed that we make. Now you wonder, well, Adam, doesn't that seem to like fly in the face of Romans 5, 1 and 2? You know the good news, justified by faith. Peace with God. That's right. You have peace with God, believer. You stand in His grace. And you have a hope for your future, but if you run the red light, you can quote Romans 5, 1 and 2 to the judge. I don't think it's going to get you out of it. Sir, I stand in grace. Great. While you're there, can you just give me the money for the ticket? I mean, that's the reality of it. You will reap the consequences, believer or unbeliever, before Christ or after Christ for the things that you sow. And as a believer, you can still sow to the flesh. And the suffering 
That's part of your life from your own sinfulness will come back. Job 4, 8. As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. I was thinking about why all the farm talk. And it's, I think, just the simple principle to illustrate that we don't always get it right away. Which is what makes sin so dangerous and diabolical. It wants to delay your destruction. Why? So you'll do more of it. It wants to steal, kill, and destroy. But it doesn't want to give you the penalty right away. Now, you could do some sin right away and immediately feel the consequence of it. But Hebrews 11.25 calls it enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. It's, it's fun for a season. It wants to, to fool you into taking more seasons of it. Until you just find yourself immersed by it and no way out. So, so burdened down by it, you give up. But there's a return on it that's built into the scriptures in these verses that says, you know what, you'll enjoy it for that season, but then you'll reap the harvest of things you seeded days ago, weeks ago, years ago. And praise be to God for the truth of Romans 5, 1 and 2, that no matter what you may get back, you do stand in Christ at peace with God. No matter how much sin that you sowed years ago, it starts coming back at you. If you're in Christ, you could say, look, i I get it. I sowed it. But that doesn't change my standing before God. If I'm in Christ, I stand in his grace. I have a future hope, even if I have some consequences to sin that I've done that I've got to pay for now. I remember growing up, leaving the house, parents had two verses above the mantle of our doorway going out, framed. One, we'll call it the positive motivation. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So like, yeah, go out there, Adam, seek it. Numbers 32, 23. Doubt anybody knows it. It's pretty obscure. Be sure your sin will find you out. There's the positive motivation, Adam. There's whatever you want to call that. The warning. And it's true. I mean, I rolled my eyes at it then. I'm thankful for it now. Because it's both. There's both this positive motivation that we stand justified and we want to seek his righteousness, but we want to be warned that our sin will find us out. If you're not in Christ today, maybe one of the reasons you stay in your unbelief and think you're fine where you are is because it's never caught up to you yet. You haven't really felt the full weight of it on you. And, And rather than presume upon that, Your heart should be broken over the fact that you could think you have God in some game. That you're always a step ahead of him. He is the eternal God, the omniscient God. He he knows every single thing you think. You're not fooling him at all. It's going to catch up to you. And so this morning, by his grace, he brings you in here, not by accident, to put that warning above the door as you leave today one more time. Be sure your sin will find you out. And you can be warned today and thereby responsible for where you stand with Jesus Christ. But here he is putting that sign up but standing right below it and saying, look, you can walk out this door in your sin or you can come to me. Which are you going to choose? Which path do you want to walk out of here on? Thinking that you can continue to stay one step ahead of God or stepping into the arms of the Savior? He says, I'm here to give you life. The thief, sin, Satan, suffering, wants to steal, kill, and destroy, and I'm here to offer you eternal life. Come to him today. The next part of suffering that we have to deal with and and look and see is part of Scripture for the believer. Connected to last point, which is suffering is part of my own sinfulness. Well, what happens as a result of that? Number four, suffering is part of God's loving discipline in my life. This is for the Christian. It's rooted, the seed form of it, is in Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves. There is a connection between discipline and love right there. And and to drive it home even farther, he uses um, 
an illustration we can understand. As a father, the son in whom he delights, the father that delights in his children, disciplines them because he loves them, not because he's angry at them. He wants to what? He wants to protect them. He wants to guide them. He wants to guard them. And this is written in such simple language so every one of us could understand. This is the way God deals with his children. Those brothers and sisters in this room in Christ, this is how he's dealing with you. He is never disciplining you out of anger. Never. It's out of his love. You can go so far as to say it's out of his delight. Whatever chastising, whatever suffering, remember that word pressing down you're feeling right now as a Christian and you're feeling like you're under something and do you know it's the loving hand of the Father trying to get you out of it by holding you under it? Why? So you turn to him. It's because he loves you. And he's trying to lead you to see that as a believer, why would you continue to go down the pathway of sin away from him when you can stand in his grace? So suffering is part of his loving discipline. That seed is planted in Proverbs 3, 11, and 12, but most of you know, some of you may not, in Hebrews 12, 5 to 11, it comes into full bloom. It's developed even further. It doesn't tell you the benefit, the payout of this discipline. But in Hebrews 12, 5 to 11, he not only quotes Proverbs 3, 11, and 12, he says in verse 11, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. And that's true. But later, just that same sowing and reaping, that same principle of waiting on it, later that discipline that's painful, not pleasant, is going to yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And there you have that language of peace, not with God. If you're a believer, you have peace with God. But for it to later in a Christian's life yield a peaceful fruit of righteousness, that's what we talked about, the difference between the peace you can have with God outside of whatever your performance is, justified by faith, you're at peace with Him. But to have the peaceful fruit of righteousness, that's the peace of God that what? When you're walking in obedience, enjoying His blessing, you'll enjoy that fruit if you've been trained by it. If you don't buck underneath it and stiffen the neck. He's going to train you by it because he loves you. It's, um, I guess, connected when we were in John 15. Those he prunes so they'll bear more fruit. And we said again and again that pruning is painful. But it's productive. It bears fruit. All kinds of righteous fruit. That we wouldn't have if he didn't keep us under. Thomas Watson Famous Christian dead guy, English Puritan of the 1600s, wrote a book called All Things for Good. A couple hundred pages just on Romans 8.28. What we sang this morning. And he says this about affliction and how God uses it. Affliction works for good to the godly. As Remember, to the godly, not to the sinner. Afflictions work for good to the godly as they are destructive to our sin. Sin is like the tree that breeds the worm, and suffering is the worm that eats the tree. I like that. This this sin is this tree that God is going to use in the godly's life to produce this worm, that that worm of affliction is then going to work in such a way it turns around and eats the tree that produced it. Affliction is the medicine which God uses to carry off the disease, he went on to say. And all this is so that he can get us back to the assurance that we have of our salvation. Not taking it for granted. And then in the suffering, seeing just how wonderful it is to be secure in Christ. Last one, and perhaps the hardest one for people to embrace and accept, is suffering as part of God's sovereign design. We may even be able to accept that it's part of his loving discipline, but when we actually have to admit that suffering is under God's sovereign control. And I say this simply from the truth of Romans eleven thirty six, Paul's last line in this great book of Romans, before he goes into chapter 12 and tells us how to live, the last thing he wants you to know, in light of all of his discussion of your wonderful salvation, how you grow through sanctification, and your final glorification, he has this last thing to say. Whatever he might have left out, he concludes with this. For from him and through him and to him are all things. All things. All things. 
That's a rather definitive summary statement of how the universe is run. As Sproul would say, no maverick molecule. Suffering part of God's sovereign design. All things from Him, meaning created by Him. All things through Him, meaning sustained by Him. All things to Him, ultimately aimed at Him. Aimed at what? Aimed at His glory. And we're back where we started in Romans 5. That we can have a hope in the glory of God. This is the purpose for which we were created. And part of that purpose includes suffering so that we see Him as all the more glorious. His design in our lives. How can Paul say that in Romans eleven thirty six? While knowing it is painful and hard as suffering it is, how can he balance it out? Well, it's what he says in verse 33, three verses earlier. The depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. There is a point, you know, Paul, we give him credit. He knows a lot. The Holy Spirit allowed him to reveal so much that we are thankful for in his letters, particularly Romans. But he does come to a point where he backs off and says, I'm out of my depths. And the pen goes down. And the worship begins. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, it's unsearchable. And there may not be a more unsearchable wisdom of God than how he is sovereign over suffering. I found an old journal of mine 18 years ago. Studying this passage. I didn't, I mean, when it just comes to knowing anything about the Bible, I barely. I mean, I was just up until age 24, just cruise control. Give me a verse a day. Come on. I'll get it. And then God in his kindness um, put me under teaching that I couldn't get enough. And I found this journal of a study I was doing in Romans. And I found what I had written at the end of studying this section in Romans 5, 1 to 5. This is what I wrote. 18 years ago. Lord, I have many questions. Some I can't even develop. My mind and heart are incapable. So allow your word to continue to take root in my life. To grow and open my heart to love you more. He answered that prayer and he continues to. Because the last thing I'm up here to say is that I have suffering figured out. I think the only thing I know more of 18 years later is I know more of the God who is over-suffering. I know more of his attributes. And by certain, he has allowed my heart to love him more. And he can do the same for you. How? You just ask him, James 1. You're going through a trial, what does it say? Ask. Ask, ask for wisdom, he'll give it. He wants to as any good father who loves his child does, wants to give a good gift. So let's go to him now in prayer. Father, we thank you for the good gifts you give us in Christ. All the blessings that are ours and 10,000 beside, thank you for these people this morning who are able to hold in tension the, the trials and sufferings in their own lives with the truths that are in your word today that they can be painful because they remind us of the pruning that we're in or that we've been through and we don't quite see the fruit on the other side yet. And so we have to embrace something like this by faith. When we don't see it, we will believe it because you've said it. So we ask you to do your work through your spirit in your word today to the glory of Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen.